The word of God that we're going to be looking at this afternoon is from the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, chapter 5, beginning with verse 16 to the end. John, chapter 5, verse 16. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. But Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he had not only broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do, for what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these, that ye may marvel. For as the Father raiseth up the dead, and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word, and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice, and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another that beareth witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. He sent unto John, and he bare witness unto the truth. But I receive not testimony from man, but these things I say, that ye might be saved. He, that is John, was a burning and a shining light, and ye were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. But I have greater witness than that of John, for the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do, bear witness of me, and the Father that the Father hath sent me. And the Father himself which hath sent me hath borne witness of me, 
Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. And ye have not his word abiding in you, for whom he hath sent him ye believe not. Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And ye will not come unto me, that ye might have life. I receive not honor from men, but I know you, that ye have not the love of God in you. I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him ye will receive. How can ye believe, which receive honor one of another, and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom ye trust. For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if ye believe not his writings, how shall ye believe my words? To put it in the terms that the Apostle Paul would put it in Second Corinthians 8, through his poverty, we might be made rich spiritually. Our text is John 5, verses 26, and then verse 40. We read there, For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. And in verse 40, And ye will not come to me, that ye might have life. And again, for those who might not have been here this morning, in Burgessville, we are going through the Belgian Confession of Faith, and Article 1 has to do with the attributes of God. So this is the second of two sermons this Sunday about one of God's attributes. This afternoon, we want to consider God as the all-sufficient one. And we're going to follow the same pattern that we did this morning, the all-sufficiency of God as God, the all-sufficiency of Jesus, and then the, the all-sufficiency and how that relates to man, to us. Now, as we begin this afternoon, I, I should have said it this morning, when we think about the attributes of God, we ought not to think about characteristics or that God is like these attributes. We remind one another that God's attributes are what he is. So we might describe certain people as loving, we might describe them as generous, but they're not that way all the time. But when we say the attributes of God, we don't say just that God is loving, even though he is, we say God is love. And so it is with this attribute. He not only has enough, but he is himself all-sufficient. And so we want to begin there, the all-sufficiency of God himself. Boys and girls, I don't know if you are used to hearing your parents sometimes read from the Psalms. In Psalm 50, we find this unusual statement made by God. It reads, If I were hungry, I would not tell thee. Why? For the world is mine, and the fullness thereof. God is basically saying, I could never be hungry as God. 
Because everything on earth that could possibly be eaten is already mine. It belongs to me. In fact, God goes on to say in that same psalm, every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. It's all mine. I own it all. I made it all. So simply put, everything that exists, he not only made, but it belongs to him. And that includes children, you and me. We belong to God. We are his creation. Now, what about before creation? Before there were beasts and cattle and things like that, before creation, obviously, there was only God. There was always God. And what was it like before creation? Well, God only gives us certain bits and pieces in his word describing that time before he created everything. So, for example, in Proverbs 8, 22 to 31, God clearly says that these divine persons, he and his son, together with the Holy Spirit, have been eternally happy within himself. So in other words, the father was fully satisfied with the son and the son with the father and the spirit and the father and the son together. And when we think about this just a little bit more deeply, this immeasurably, infinitely great God who is limitless in all his perfections, one who's whose glory we can't possibly add to because it's already infinite, it is impossible, actually, if you think about it, that he could need anything. Anything beyond himself. To put it another way, if God needed anything, anything not found within himself, then he couldn't exist without that something else. And therefore, that something else would have to be eternal too. So simply put, we can say, there has never been a need in God for anything beyond himself. So God was and is infinitely and fully satisfied in every way eternally. He needed nothing. He needed no one beyond himself ever. He did not create, boys and girls, the universe because he needed something to do. He didn't create man because God somehow became lonely. He didn't create everything because he somehow was lacking in himself. And actually, to think about this just one more way, from one more perspective, to make it maybe simple for you, boys and girls, if you would know someone who was always kind to you, who was always good to you, who always went above and beyond whatever you expected of them, who was able to do anything that you needed to be done, one who never lied, one who never disappointed you, one who always exceeded all your expectations, I think it would be very easy to see that we would be drawn to such a person. We would want to be around a person like that. Well, such a being 
is God. One whose perfections, all of them, are infinitely and truly inexhaustible. So that if there could be a need of anything, God would meet that need in himself. So let's just be very plain. The, even the idea of need in God is utterly foreign to him. And I'm, I'm saying all this for a very important reason. That reality that God needs absolutely nothing beyond himself, never did, forces us to be thoughtful about creation. Why would a being such as God, who is infinitely, eternally satisfied within himself, why would he ever create anything beyond himself if he didn't need to? Nor must we think that given enough time, God needed something to occupy himself. Because if you think about it, time didn't exist before the creation. There didn't need to be time. Time would actually serve no purpose for an eternal being who says, I am. For God, boys and girls, there's no past, there's no present, there's no future. That's why when he revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush, he said, I am that I am. That's why Jesus, when it came to it, he said to the Jewish leaders, before Abraham was, he didn't say, I was, he said, I am. In our first text, John five twenty six, Jesus said, For as the Father hath life in himself, and we'll just pause there, the expression life in himself means God the Father is self-existent. That means he didn't need to receive his life from some other. He is life, and he creates life. No one, boys and girls, created God. No one gave him life. He is, in the truest sense of the word, God is what life is. So Jesus goes on to say in our chapter, speaking about himself as the eternal Son of God, so hath he, that is the Father, given to the Son to have life in himself. Now, children, here it's going to get a little bit difficult, but let's just try it anyway. What Jesus just said is what we refer to as the Son's eternal generation. So in ways that are very hard for us to grasp, that the Father begat the Son, had the Son, and yet this word begat is used in Scripture about the son, unlike how we use it today. When your mom begets a son, there is a child that is formed in the womb that eventually, hopefully, is born, grows up. We say we beget a son or daughter. But when speaking about the eternal son being begotten by the eternal father, it simply means not that the son had a beginning, had a conception, had a birth like us, 
but it does mean as best we can grasp that God the Father and the Son are not just names, they are not just titles, but they are the truest representation, the truest meaning of what Father and Son could ever be without implying that the one existed before the other. So both are eternal with the Holy Spirit. Now I'm mentioning the beginning of the Son because there are five times in the New Testament when God uses the expression concerning Jesus, the only begotten Son. And I want us to notice that every time he uses that expression, it adds power, it adds weight to what he's saying. So let me give you them. The first is when John writes, and we beheld his glory, that is the glory of God in Jesus. This is the Apostle John. And then he says, what glory? The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Meaning, when we saw Jesus for who he really was, and in fact, when we see Jesus by faith for who he really was, we see in him a glory unlike any glory any man has ever had. We see the glory of God in him. Then again, John writes in another place, no man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, so God's only Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, couldn't be closer. He hath declared him. The Son declares the Father, who he is. And the word declare here, interestingly, is the word we use, exegete. So to unpack and to explain the Father. That's one of the reasons the Son came to this earth, that we might truly know God. Again, we read in John 3.16, that famous text. Notice how only begotten is used there, adding so much to that gospel promise. For God so loved the world, he loved the world in such a way, to such an extent, that he gave who? Not just his son, not just Jesus, his only begotten son. None less than his only son, the one he begat eternally, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He so loved that he gave him that one. And again, see how only begotten adds weight to this promise and warning. He that believeth on him, that is Jesus, is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already. Why? Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So it's not just not believing in Jesus, not paying attention to Jesus, not investing in Jesus. No, this is the only begotten. This is God's only Son. This is God's eternally begotten one. And if you don't believe in him, you're condemned already. The Father sent his only Son. So the Father and the Son have life in themselves eternally, together with the Spirit. They had everything that could ever be wanted. They were entirely self-existent. They were fully self-sufficient. They didn't need anything outside of themselves 
outside of the being of God. Why then did God create anything at all? Colossians 1.16 gives us the first part of an answer. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible. He goes on to say whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. So think governments, think angels, think anything that exercises any authority or power. All things were created by him, and then here it comes, and for him. Revelation 4.11, we have a little bit more. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. So again, the, the idea of need is entirely foreign to God, but it was for his pleasure that he created everything. It was for his glory, not for man. Again, Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. Psalm 148, praise ye him, sun and moon, praise him, all ye stars of light. Praise him, ye heavens of heavens, and ye waters that be above the heavens. So you see this, this entire creation glorifying God in ways that, that we, we fail to understand with all of our sophistication. Everything around us just glorifies God by its very existence. And then in Romans 1.20, we find out that God continues today to use creation to extol his existence and his power throughout the entire universe. Isn't, isn't it interesting that the enemies of God and his church want us to believe that the very creation which praises and glorifies God just happened to be? But then the question, if God doesn't need anything apart from himself, if, if God did all of this for his pleasure, then you have to ask this question, for whose eyes, if not for God's, for whose eyes did he make it all? Although the Belgic Confession talks about creation under Articles 2 and then 12, we can only conclude that the creation that God has made was an act of generosity. And not just the universe generally, but the creation of men, the creature who received the very imprint of God's image in so many ways, created in the very image and likeness of the creator himself, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So we must conclude on the basis of the word that this only self-existent triune God willed to display something of his greatness and his majesty by means of something outside of himself and especially 
by this peculiar creature called man who could, as he was created in a creaturely measure, not only display something of the glory of God by reflection, but this creature could actually know God, could actually love God, could actually reflect God, could actually enjoy God's presence forever. There's no other creature like us. And the fact, as we consider this morning, that God knew from all eternity that his premier creation, man, would willfully rebel against him, effectually ruining himself and defacing God's good earth, that none of this surprised him, that none of this made any alteration in God's eternal plan of revealing his glory and majesty and in fact the very fall of man God used to reveal even more about himself than we could have ever known had there not been a fall that does not mean that God made Adam and Eve fall that can't be but he overrode their rebellion. He overruled their rebellion to actually display more of his glory to man. And that brings us to our second thought, all sufficiency and Jesus. Having considered that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are always all sufficient within themselves, that ought to impress upon us the immeasurable condescension of God to come into this world to send his only begotten into this world as a man in the form of a man and we keep in mind that man is a creature man is a creation of God So think about this. The eternal self-existent Son, God himself allowed himself to become a creation, to be united to, and we could say this, to be confined to a creaturely existence. So what did that look like? Instead of the Son being everywhere present, the divine nature of the Son continued to be everywhere present, but the Son of God in human nature was confined to one place at one time throughout his entire life. He confined himself to traveling on foot from place to place. From being the creator of all, Jesus was a dependent infant. He was a dependent child. He was a dependent man. As an adult, he relied on others to even supply his food. He had no settled dwelling place. He would have to say, the foxes have holes, The birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man, the only begotten, doesn't have a place where to lay his head. 
instead of being the overflowing fountain of all life and good, he endures as a man, misunderstanding at the hand of his of Mary and Joseph, misunderstandings at the hand of his own hand-picked disciples, rejection at the hand of people who at first followed him in droves and then departed from him, not to mention the open, growing hostility and opposition of those very people who were supposed to be leading the people of God in the worship of his father who eventually condemned him for telling the truth about himself, who he really was. And again, boys and girls, we got to remember that he could have prevented all of it. Remember, boys and girls, how two times in the Gospels we read about Jesus multiplying the bread and the fish. So obviously he could have made plenty of food for himself, but then we find in John chapter 4, he sends his disciples to a neighboring place to buy food to eat. We find him refusing to, to change a stone into bread, which he could have done, but because the devil suggested it as a temptation, he wouldn't do it even though he had been fasting for 40 days. the one who could call down myriads of angels to defend him, who by simply speaking the words I am cast the entire mob that came to arrest him to the ground just by a word, having that power, and then immediately after he allows his hands to be bound by his enemies. He who cured so many people of so many ailments, how he even raised from the dead Lazarus, the son of the widow of Nain, Jairus' daughter from death, allows himself to die on an accursed tree. The one who is life itself, the source of all life that ever existed. He dies. He who is the comfort of sinners himself was weary and suffered, became a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The one who dried the tears of so many during his ministry with his words and his deeds, he wept In so many ways, he who is God himself allowed himself to experience all the weakness associated with being an ordinary man. Think of this. The God who spoke the entire universe into into existence spent the first 30 years of his life making chairs and tables in almost total obscurity. He who had complete authority over all creation subjects himself to Joseph and Mary when he's young. He who is perfectly loved 
infinitely honored by his father, endured insults, threats, buffeting, spitting, scourging, blasphemies from sinners. The all-sufficient one, the holy other one, the eternally joyful one, on purpose became the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He became someone who remained almost invisible for the first 30 years of his life on earth so that it was said of him prophetically, when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. So must not we ask not only how could all this be, but mustn't we ask why would all this be? What could possibly motivate the all-sufficient one to so deeply condescend to all of this? And that brings us to our last thought, all-sufficiency and man. We want to begin with man where man began, creation. We've already considered how creation itself was an act of generosity within God. That especially the creation of man, a man who, who could know, who could love, who could serve God, made in his image and likeness. And, and let those words sink in a moment. In God's likeness, in God's image. Not needing man in any way, God created us anyway. With the image of the Holy Other One stamped upon us. In his image. And this utterly transcendent, this utterly infinite, self-sufficient God was willing to commune with man in the garden. To have fellowship with a creature of his making. The infinite with the finite. The creator with the created. And, and we all know what, what man did with this inestimable gift, this remarkable act of generosity. We call it the fall of man for a reason, and, and what a fall it was. But when it came to sufficiency, and we talked about this somewhat this morning, even before Adam and Eve fell, before their grievous sin against the Lord, they were created dependent upon the Lord, right? They were dependent particularly on the word of the Lord. Then no children, Adam and Eve didn't have a Bible. God spoke to them with a voice that they could hear. And God instructed them to have dominion over the earth. He told them to be fruitful and multiply, to have children. He told them where they would live. He told them what they should do. They should till the earth. They should be image bearers of God. 
their responsibility in the garden, what they should eat, what they would not eat. Their very marriage was arranged by God himself. So though they were sinless, though they enjoyed unbroken, intimate communion with the Almighty, they were God's eminent creature. After all that God did for us, after all that he made us, they were not satisfied. Instead of being just overflowingly joyful that, that they who were made of the dust of the rib of Adam that they could have a relationship with their creator personally, intimately instead of rejoicing and being immensely thankful for the privilege of knowing him and serving him being so cared for by him receiving everything from him receiving their very lives from him like we do At the instigation of the devil, they were convinced, as all of us were at one time or another, or perhaps still are, that we should try living independently of God, that we should be our own gods. And that fall, that sin of the lust for independence, is the history of mankind ever since. And what is the message that our culture, our world communicates to us on a daily basis? Independence as much as possible is the goal, isn't it? Whether it's financial independence, access to the best health care, best doctors, build sources of comfort into our lives, try not to rely on too many people, don't show too much weakness, don't be vulnerable, be strong, and so on. And in this quest for independence, who is by definition forgotten? Even by churchgoers. Well, boys and girls, God is. So let me simply ask this question. How much do you and I actually, really, depend on God in our lives. Now, I'm sure we have been taught well, well enough to know that spiritually we have a need. But what about the rest of our lives? How do, how do we manage the rest of life? Are we dependent on the word of God as we were created to be. Because actually we're in a similar situation to Adam in even some respects. Everything we have, everything we can do, everything we are, our very lives, our health, our possessions, ultimately, though perhaps our labors were a means to acquire these things, ultimately doesn't it all come from him? Isn't it all directed our way through his providence? His direction? His giving us the necessary strength of body and of mind? And yet how often we can be so close to this holy other one, the one who never needed us for his survival, 
his happiness and fulfillment, and yet we can so often live as if he did not exist. As if we really don't need him. But here is the here is the absolute wonder of God's gospel grace. Despite this, despite our sins, despite the sins of others, despite the sins of our culture, despite the sins of our history, despite the sins of the whole world and the whole history of the whole world, what did the all-sufficient Holy One do? Well, what he could have done is just entirely withdraw himself from us as a judgment, to utterly leave us over to ourselves. He could have destroyed the world with a flood once and left it that way, and it would have been just if he did. If he had judged us the second we sinned, creatures who continuously defy him, disobey him, disregard him, So what did he do? The all-sufficient one sent his all-sufficient son to save the insufficient man, the rebel, from our own self-made condemnation. And how did he do it? How would he save a world from its would-be independence, from its madness. How did he do it in your life? How did he do it in my life? He made us dependent. He broke down and broke in to our thinking and revealed to us, whether gradually or suddenly, how utterly dependent we are on him, how much we owe him, how desperately bankrupt we are spiritually, unable to repay any of our spiritual debt, but instead, every day, increasing the judgment we deserve. In other words, God through his word and spirit, convinces us that we are not only not independent, but that even our independent desires, our desires for independence, our sins, that our vain imagination that we can somehow live without God is a sin, a sin that we need to repent of, that we need to openly acknowledge, We need to realize in the depth of our soul that independence is not only impossible, but it's actually madness. It's it's blindness. But here's where so many reach this point and stop at this point. Because realizing, beloved, our folly will never deliver us from our folly all the conviction of sin in the world is never going to save us from sin. Those convictions may drive us to God or draw us to God in our desperate need, but mind you, the Lord has to bring us, has to direct us elsewhere 
for the solution, for us to be freed from this incessant quest for independence and our bondage from sin. And where is that destination to which he brings us? The place where the all-sufficient, holy, self-sufficient Son of God became the all-dependent Son of Man. Beloved, that, that condescension of the Son that we considered earlier, the, the unthinkable of the all-sufficient one who needs nothing, the infinitely glorious and joyful one, having all that one could ever wish within himself, that God, that Son, covenant together in Trinity, in full knowledge of what his creatures, what we would do, all of our sins, and continue to do, he revealed fully his heart of mercy, his, as his word says, his delight to show mercy, his unfathomable love despite the unworthiness of the object of that love. So that the apostle, limited by human language, expressed this wonder in these few words. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. And again, in whom, that is, in Christ, we have redemption. How? How are we redeemed from bondage? Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. And again, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. And again, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness. And as if we would forget, by whose stripes ye are healed. And finally, that we might, if possible, be even more humbled and more amazed by our God, by the sheer greatness and goodness of God in Christ, Consider this parable and the astonishing ending of it. 
It's in Luke 12, 35 to 37. It's very short. Jesus said to his disciples, Let your loins be girded about, your lights burning, and ye yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord when he shall return from the wedding. And now listen to this. He's talking, by the way, children, Jesus is about his own return in glory. He says, here's what I want you to be like. Be like that. So that when he cometh, when Jesus returns and knocketh, you may open unto him immediately. And then listen to these words. Blessed are those servants who when the Lord comes, he finds watching. What will he do? Verily I say unto you, he, Jesus, God's only begotten, shall gird himself, make them to sit down to meet, and will come forth and serve them. Serve them when he returns in glory. The the all-sufficient one, having done all of that, will come back and serve us. Jesus, boys and girls, in this parable is speaking about his returning glory at the end of the world. For those who are watching, for those who are waiting for his return, when he comes, he's going to have them sit down He's going to serve them in glory. The Lord of glory serving saved sinners. And we find it so recorded in the book of Revelation. For the Lamb, which is in the midst of the throne, shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of water. The all-sufficient God is that generous to completely insufficient sinners. Who is a God like unto our God? Exodus 15.11 Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Psalm 35, who is like unto thee, which delivereth the poor from him that is too strong for him? Is that you? Is that me? It is me. Unable to extricate ourselves from the grip of sin and Satan, the poor, he'll do it. Who is a God like unto thee, Micah 7, that pardoneth iniquity, passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He retains not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. And we could answer with Exodus 8, verse 10, very readily, there is none like unto the Lord our God. Second Chronicles 6.14 There is no God like thee in the heaven, nor in the earth, which keepest covenant and showest mercy unto thy servants. Beloved, it is, it is no wonder that we read in glory 
that every creature, and I'm quoting, which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, we will hear saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. So very simply, are you worshiping this God the all-sufficient God and the sufficient Savior. And may I ask you, is he enough for you? Is the only begotten Son who became a man, who suffered all that he did, is that enough for you? Is he enough for you the first time? You and I who have nothing in ourselves, is he enough to trust and to see enough the second time, and the third time, and the thousandth time, when we still find ourselves woefully in debt, insufficiently praising him, as we nearly always do. Are you depending upon this all-sufficient, merciful God to supply all your needs according to his riches in glory, by Christ Jesus? Have you been made to see your dependence on him and, and being, be made willing, seeing that dependence, to apply to him out of a sense of need? In Second Corinthians 9, verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound toward you that ye, and listen to this, that ye always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. Now, how do you outdo that? I'm going to read it again. God is able, and why would he say this unless he's willing to do it for sinners? God is able to make all grace abound toward you that ye always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. That's his word. How can we lack when we simply fall before this great God, this remarkable Savior, Ephesians 2 verse 7, it doesn't even stop in this life. Paul goes on to say, in the ages to come, to show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. It's as though eternity exists in heaven in glory so that he can just keep showing layer after layer, depth after depth of his generosity and goodness and grace to sinners saved to you and me. I close with these words from the prophets. Therefore, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me 
that I am the Lord, which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, saith the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Truly, Lord, we stagger in amazement that thou who needeth nothing and never did not only show thy immense generosity in creating us and everything that exists outside of thee, but that thou would, and we say it with the uttermost reverence, that thou would reduce thy dear Son, into a human nature while remaining God, endure all what he did so that people who could never even want to be saved would not only be saved, but would be served even in glory. Lord, we have to confess Everything about us in this world is exactly the opposite of thee. Where in this world, the more who serve us, the more glory we think we have. Thy kingdom is altogether different. Thou delightest in serving sinners. Lord, if we could ask anything, make us more like thee that we would deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow also in this way. Get out of a sense of our dependence. We may encourage others who are dependent too. Oh God, forgive us. Oh, lifetime of wanting to be independent. And help us to love thee to serve thee as we ought. And we ask this in the pardoning of our sins, in Jesus' name, amen.